It's my pleasure to, uh, to introduce uh, Gail Hurley, who is the uh, Policy and Advocacy Officer at the European Network on Debt and Development. Um, we've grown to uh, rely a great deal on the research that Gail and her colleagues do at Eurodad. Uh, recently, um, Gail has, has published and written on the Heavily Indebted Poor Country Initiative, the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative, and an exciting uh, new uh, area of inquiry on work on responsible lending. I'm hoping Gail will, will talk to us about that. And Gail has also been a, um, a member of the Commission for the Integral Audit of Public Debt in Ecuador, which sets some important precedents by um, actually looking at the origin of some of the illegitimate and odious debt that the people of Ecuador are saddled with and set an example for, I think, many countries of the global south. So without further ado, Gail, please share your with us. Well, thank you for those very uh, kind words, John. I'm aware I have the, the sort of post-lunch sleepy session. Uh, so I hope you all have doses, suitably strong doses of coffee in front of you. And what I've done, just to keep you all on your toes, is to pepper my presentation with lots of facts and figures. So there'll be a prize at the end of it for whoever can recount accurately the, the most number of facts and figures. So certainly, as, as Fraser had already mentioned, um, the issue of developing country debt had fallen off the political agenda um, for the past few years. In 2005, there was the agreement at the G8 summit for the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative, which cancelled an additional 55 billion in multilateral debt for uh, 42 heavily indebted poor countries, and policymakers have very much tended to portray developing country debt as, as done, if you like. But more recently than that, a significant uh, number of analysts have raised concerns over renewed sovereign debt difficulties in a number of countries due to the fallout of the global recession. And the global financial crisis has certainly hit developing countries very hard indeed. Pablo, in his presentation earlier this morning, mentioned a number of pressures on developing countries, such as falling commodity prices, falling levels of foreign direct investment, migrant remittances, uh, uncertain levels of overseas development uh, aid, increased spreads on sovereign bonds, and these are a number of, of pressures which have significantly worsened the budgetary position of many poor country governments. There are some estimates around that, and here's the first figure. <laughs> there are some estimates around that um, uh, developing countries will lose incomes of around $750 billion in 2009, and the figure for sub-Saharan Africa is $50 billion in lost income. And estimates of the financing gap for 98 developing countries in 2009 stands at between 350 and 635 billion. And the World Bank recently um, released a report on low-income countries and um, the, the, the pressures on low-income countries due to the global recession. And um, they said as a result of that, around $11.6 billion in core expenditures, core expenditures are at risk due to the global recession. 
Certainly, some countries have been able to draw down their reserves, their foreign exchange reserves, which they'd built up um, during so-called boom years over, over the past few years. But certainly, these won't be enough to cover some countries' current account deficits and external debt repayments for a very long time indeed. And certainly some countries have drawn down their reserves significantly already, um, which has raised some analyst uh, concern over the possibilities of, of sovereign debt default. But certainly how, how concerned should we really be? I mean, what is the evidence for renewed sovereign debt difficulties in some countries? because it's true that many countries, many developing countries, entered the global financial crisis in a stronger macroeconomic position than, say, 15 years ago, and some countries have benefited from debt reduction under the heavily indebted poor country quite recently. 15 years ago, and here's another one, um, Sub-Saharan Africa, debt as a percentage of gross national income stood at around 76%. And in 2008, this had fallen to 25%. So some countries definitely did enter the global financial crisis in a stronger macroeconomic position. But it's increasingly clear that some countries are facing uh, new challenges. So let me start with low-income countries and what the evidence points to what the picture is in some low-income countries. So before the global financial crisis hit in September uh, 2008, a total of 12 low-income countries had debt-to-GDP ratios of over 60%. And now the IMF says that for countries with weak governments, weak institutions, reliant on just a few commodity exports, a sustainable level of debt is around 30% of debt to GNI. So this is over double that threshold level. By March 2009, the IMF reported that 28 low-income countries registered debt to GDP ratios of over 60%. So that's quite a significant increase. But there are some estimates which um, point to even greater concerns. For example, um, UNCTAD in their 2009 Least Developed Country Report point to an unsustainably high debt burden in 49 least developed countries, and that's a debt to GDP ratio of over 50%. The, uh, <coughs> the IMF also, um, very interestingly, undertook a number of, of simulations which looked at, well, if um, overseas development aid and foreign direct investment should decline by 30% on the levels seen in 2008, and the shortfall is replaced fully with public external borrowing, then this will increase um, low-income countries' debt burdens by 4% over just one year. And while that may not sound like very much, if, as some analysts predict, the effects of the global financial crisis are, are felt for several years to come, this will dramatically increase the poorest and most vulnerable countries' uh, vulnerabilities to, to debt difficulties. But the concerns are not just limited to low-income countries, and arguably it's some middle-income countries and upper-middle-income countries we should be even more concerned about. And I'm kind of looking to my own region um, here. I'm from Europe, 
And if you look at the debt indicators for the Central and Eastern Europe and also the Central Asia region, it's the region which has most dramatically increased its debt levels over the past decade. And the figures are so striking here, both in absolute terms and as a percentage of GDP. It's the region which has very much gone on a sort of debt-fueled growth um, boom over the past decade. In 2000, the, the debt of the Central and Eastern Europe and Central Asia region was around $440 billion. By 2004, it had increased to $662 billion. But by 2008, just before the financial crisis, it had increased to 1.4 trillion US dollars. So that's from 440 billion in 2000 to 1.4 trillion in 2008, which is a huge, huge increase. But most worryingly, a lot of that debt, a large chunk of it, is held in short term. Uh, debt instruments, which are set to mature in 2009 and 2010. In fact, 283 billion will fall due in 2009 in the region, precisely at a time when uh, international banks may be most unwilling to roll over those maturing debt obligations because, you know, moves to recapitalize um, international banks with public funds have created a sort of home bias in lending whereby those banks have been um, uh, increasingly forced to look to the domestic market and scale back international activities. Um, and that will add uh, significant pressures on those countries to roll over those maturing um, debt obligations. And another factor um, which Tina pointed to was also in her presentation is the issue of the sharp devaluation and depreciations of many currencies. Because a lot of these debts are held in in foreign currencies, in, in euros and in dollars, which makes debt service um, in local currency, lo local currency terms really um, much more expensive. I mean, the Ukraine, for example, its currency depreciated by 60% on 2008. And on average, in sub-Saharan Africa, currencies have depreciated 25% against the US dollar, which significantly adds to the difficulties of external uh, debt service. And another, a number of other countries also enter the global financial crisis with unsustainably high debt burdens. And some of them include Jamaica, with a debt to GDP of 108%, Kazakhstan 103%, Seychelles 190%, Lebanon 101%, Grenada 116%, and Samoa 223% debt to GDP. So what is the response of the international community to countries' financing gaps, to their difficulties for um, servicing uh, their foreign debt and helping them meet their, their fiscal challenges? Well, in, in a nutshell, the response of the G20, of the international community, is new debt, it's new loans. And given that developing countries were not at the origin, they were not responsible for the global financial crisis, it would seem profoundly unjust and unethical that the only way they can secure the funds they need to meet um, their financing gap, to meet their fiscal challenges, um, rising need in social services, etc., is new debt. Um, 
I mean, a lot of attention is certainly focused on the 1.1 trillion the G20 made available, and the bulk of that is, is in loans. And it seems ironic that, you know, so many countries um, have just exited debt relief processes, comprehensive debt relief processes, and we're now chucking new loans at them all over again. Um, since September 2008, 32 countries have reached agreements with the IMF for 170 billion in new debt. And this uh, follows five years in which uh, repayments to the institution exceeded disbursements. The World Bank has increased its lending by 54% on, two, on 2008. And the G20 has also uh, funneled an additional 250 billion in trade finance. And um, the European Commission recently reported that European export credit agencies now enjoy an increased insurance guarantee capacity of on average around 35%. And given the dubious record of export credit agencies um, over the past couple of decades, that's definitely um, of concern to, to many civil society organizations. But what this means, what these new developments mean is that it's, it's putting official lenders back into sort of centre center stage, whereas before it was private sectors, uh, private sector finance, which was playing um, uh, the, a more prominent role in meeting the external financing needs of developing countries. Now um, official lenders are playing uh, an increasingly prominent role. Um, you know, for example, pre-crisis official lenders were responsible for just 4% of external finance for developing countries, and post-crisis this has risen to 37%. And I, I hope I won't get too technical here, but I think this is important, um, and I wanted to mention it very, very briefly is that you know, the G20 has made this agreement to chuck billions of dollars of new loans to developing countries. And they've rewritten their own rules to enable them to do this. And what do I mean by that? Um, well, pre-crisis, the World Bank and IMF adopted what is called the Debt Sustainability Framework for low-income countries. And the Debt Sustainability Framework essentially meant that World Bank IMF analysts did a technical assessment of the economic um, capacity of a country to repay their debt and gave them a red, amber or green light. And if a country got a red light, it meant you shouldn't extend new loans to the country um, because they were already vulnerable to debt difficulties. And in this way, um, uh, you know, the tool, the instrument, was supposed to prevent new debt crises. And sort of lenders around the world enthusiastically signed up to this new tool saying this will prevent new debt crises. Because we will now know if a country's in difficulty and we'll know not to lend to it. It will just get grants or it'll get nothing at all. Um, so what, have, what has happened now? Well, basically, the G20 ordered the World Bank and ordered the IMF to rewrite the tool. It said, oh, we need to make it more flexible because we're chucking lots of billions of dollars of new loans to these countries. So we needed to make it more flexible. We needed to essentially raise countries' credit limits. And um, they've basically... Um, decided now to include um, migrant remittances in calculations of countries' capacities to repay debt, and they've also decided to exclude certain publicly guaranteed debts from countries' capacities to repay debt. So that means that countries are essentially allowed to borrow more. And so again, this, um, this raises concern 
that um, more countries may get into debt difficulties is also um, uh, basically means that it gives donors a get-out clause as well from providing more concessional finance on the table. So, um, what are our alternatives, most importantly? So, um, as our alternatives to new debt, as the response, um, Eurodad, the organisation I work for, is proposing measures on two different levels. Measures on the short term and measures on the more longer term systemic level to help countries deal with potential renewed sovereign debt difficulties. So, firstly, our proposals on the short term so as a temporary stopgap measure to help countries deal with immediate fiscal pressures in a non-debt-creating way, we propose um, a debt service standstill or moratorium in 2009 and 2010. Developing countries are projected to reimburse over 806 billion in, um, in external debt in 2009 and 2010. If we extend this um, temporary standstill, um, on debt service payments to the 64 IDA-only countries. Our calculations are that this will release 30.5 billion in non-debt creating resources which can be used to help countries meet their development channel, uh, challenges. UNCTAD's calculations for 49 countries over two years are 26 billion. What are the benefits of this? Okay, we believe it provides predictable, efficient, condition-free, most importantly, non-debt-creating resources for financing for development. And there are precedents for such measures. For example, in 2004, following the tsunami, the Indian Ocean tsunami, the Paris Club offered such a standstill to tsunami-affected countries. And more recently, the IMF announced um, that for two years it would suspend interest repayments on loans from the 64 poorest countries um, amounting to around 60 to 70 million over two years, which is very little money, but it does show that they believe that this kind of measure can be useful. If we extend it for five years, you know, um, and link it to the MDGs, you know, help countries meet or uh, their international um, uh, international goals, uh, international development goals, this can release $72 billion for the 64 um, uh, poorest countries. And what is great about this proposal is that lenders can act unilaterally, such as Canada. They don't need anyone else to do it. They can say, okay, we would like to help countries during these critical times, help them meet the MDGs because we've signed up to that as Canada. Um, and, you know, we can grant this to countries which are off track towards the MDGs and act alone. So that would be our recommendation there. But we're not the only ones who've said this measure could be useful. UNCTAD and the Commonwealth Finance, HIPIC finance ministers have also called for such a measure. Okay, I know I don't have much time left, so I want to talk about the second measure, which my colleague Oscar Ugatechi, I hope we have him up on screen soon, will we'll, um, speak to more in detail. But this takes a, a more longer-term systemic view. Um, Basically, the reality is that if countries do face renewed sovereign debt difficulties today, um, which is possible in some, in, in some cases, they will face the same situation as they did 25 years ago with the outbreak of um, the, the modern-day debt crisis, i.e. there is no international, comprehensive, fair, predictable, efficient procedure to resolve sovereign debt difficulties. And I think, you know, 
governments, the World Bank, the IMF, should be a little more honest and say, if we look at history, we will see that history shows us there will always be cases of debt default, sovereign debt default, debt sustainability framework or no debt sustainability framework. Yes, a debt analysis can be useful, but there will always be cases where a country cannot meet its debt obligations through no fault of its own. And in that context, we absolutely fundamentally need some sort of international fair and transparent and predictable and efficient orderly debt workout mechanism at the international level to deal with such cases. And this is ever more urgent given you know, indications of, of, of some problems in some countries. Um, successive UN Financing for Development summits have called for such measures. Um, more recently, the Dutch government has uh, released a proposal which, um, uh, which offers um, uh, some views on how this could be taken forward. The World Bank is now doing a research paper which will be released in March which uh, takes up this issue. And there's definitely more renewed political interest in such a mechanism. Um, and that's hugely overdue. And so our message to the Canadian government would be to energetically support further research on this issue and to champion and be part of an international process on this issue. Maybe try and get a group of governments together, a group of like-minded governments, south and north, to actually take work on this issue further. But in parallel to this, where new loans are extended, and you know, they, you know, new money is, is flowing. We believe it's essential that that finance provided um, does adhere to responsible lending and borrowing principles. And in that context, um, Eurodad has been doing a lot of work over the past 18 months to develop a set of standards and principles for responsible uh, lending and borrowing to ensure that the process is responsible, sustainable, legitimate um, and fair. And our charter, our, our standards describe the, the, the processes that lenders and borrowers need to take to ensure a pro-development outcome and deal with sovereign debt difficulties and disputes where they may arise. And we believe that these measures, sort of the, the, the temporary stopgap measure of a standstill, combined with more longer-term efforts, uh, systemic efforts to, to address um, international debt management deficiencies, were, are more likely to have um, lasting effect than simply chucking new loans um, at developing countries, which is arguably uh, easier to do. But and that, you know, it shores up substantial liabilities for five or ten years down the line. So while we might not have a sovereign debt crisis today, we might have one five to ten years down the line. I've got the one-minute red card, but what I want to end by saying is that, um, you know, I think what the financial crisis has shown is that a development strategy which is founded on a chronic addiction to um, foreign credit these countries hugely vulnerable to the availability and affordability of foreign capital. It's fine when times are good and interest rates are low, but it puts them in hugely vulnerable positions when liquidity is scarce and the price of capital increases. But why are countries so dependent on foreign credit in the first place? And this was dealt with 
in some respects in the panel before, but these issues are fundamentally linked. Countries are so fundamentally dependent on external credit because of the huge outflow of resources from them, because of a, fail to, a failure to uh, mobilize sufficient resources domestically, because of capital flight, because of capital account liberalization. And so these are all the same sides of, of um, different sides of the same coin. And so I just wanted to end by saying that, and I would be very happy to answer any questions. Thank you.